This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Steve James is a documentary filmmaker whose body of work has taken him from the Academy Award-nominated epic Hoop Dreams to the 2008 financial crisis to film critic Roger Ebert. His latest film, A Compassionate Spy, is about Ted Hall, a physicist who worked at Los Alamos during World War II and helped develop the atomic bomb. You may have heard something or other about the bomb lately, what with Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer film in theaters now and creating buzz by the gallons, but Hall's story is just as important. He took what he learned at Los Alamos and shared it with the Soviet Union in the aftermath of the war, an action that had a profound effect on human history and continues to reverberate. The movie is about his life, uh, the reasons that he did it. Uh, it features firsthand accounts with him uh, as well as his wife, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite a project. Steve, uh, welcome to Political Theater. Great to be here. So let's, I, I always you know, start with some sort of variation on the same question, which is, there are so many topics. There are so many uh, stories out there. What's what brought this one to you that you wanted to spend uh, years of your life uh, <laughs> uh, developing, and and also because it's it's a it gets complicated very fast uh, with with the Hall story because uh, it really is more than about just Ted. It's about uh, it's about his wife. It's about his family. It's about his friends, uh, and it is not a sort of an open shut case of he's a spy or he's a patriot. Uh, you know, it, it's. This is a, a complex thing. It's a kind of a love story, uh, even. Uh, what got you involved with this story? You know, I think yeah, the love story was was a big part of the appeal, uh, to be honest. I mean, I did I had not heard of Ted Hall. I did not know his story. Uh, the producer, one of the producers on the film, uh, Dave Lindorf, wrote an article about Ted that um, Joan Hall, Ted's surviving wife, widow, read and reached out to Dave with a thank you. And that led Dave to reaching out to me and saying, I think there's a film here. I, you know, this, this is an important story that no one seems to really know about. And I think he was right. And so the more I learned about it, the more intrigued I became. And then what we did is we went to, we went to Cambridge, England, where Joan lives. And we spent three, four days with her interviewing her. And I was just completely taken with her recall, uh, her storytelling, her her verve, <laughs> uh, her personality, and her absolute love for Ted and and the role that she played in sort of helping him navigate those post-war years and elude the FBI and raise a family. And, and I just thought, well, this is a great story. And then when I found out that there was actual footage of Ted speaking about this before he passed away in 1999, 
I was I was hooked because I think it is, you know, Oppenheimer. I watched it over the weekend, enjoyed it greatly. Um, you know, it's a story of a man uh, in part who was accused of doing exactly what Ted actually did. Um, you know, not at the time he, he, but after the war, once the Soviets got the bomb, uh, much more quickly than the American intelligence community thought they would, then they started casting around looking for who would, who would have been the spies at Los Alamos. And they landed on Oppenheimer, who of course wasn't a spy and Ted managed to elude, uh, a capture his whole life, although they discovered in the early fifties that it was Ted and they tried like crazy to, um, to get him to admit it so that they could prosecute him. And I mean, he is, he's such a character too. I mean, like he, he is in, in his own right. He is super interesting. Uh, he was a, he was plucked. He was one of the sort of best and brightest, you know, plucked, uh, from, from America's universities. He was 18 years old and a senior at Harvard. Uh, when they they asked him to be a part of the Manhattan Project, sworn to secrecy, you know, taken away from, you know, I mean, like Los Alamos is still an isolated place. Uh, you know, it, it's it's very isolated in 1943 uh, and 1944, 1945. You know, during, during the heyday of the Manhattan Project, and then another name, you know, thrown in here too with the with the espionage aspects of it. I mean, he decides to to share, you know, these secrets with the Soviets uh, right after the war. Uh, is the the Rosenbergs, you know, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, who were accused of espionage, convicted on espionage charges of of of, of uh, taking secrets to the Soviets, and executed in the electric chair. And they they you know there there is this dramatic moment too where their you know their history, the Hall's history, uh, sort of crosses paths with uh, with the Rosenbergs, including like literally the day that the Rosenbergs were were executed at Sing Sing. They, they drive by the correctional facility on, a, on the way to a, a social event. It's really kind of harrowing when the stuff you can't really make up almost. It would seem like too, too bridge too far if it was fictional. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of bridge too far if it was fictional in this story, you know, and, and, you know, the, with the Rosenbergs, you know, Ted, Ted realized that Julius Rosenberg was in all likelihood guilty and this was at a time when this trial was captivating the world, literally. And there were many people, particularly on the left, who thought Julius Rosenberg was innocent and, and that he was being scapegoated. Now, he wasn't innocent. Did he deserve to be executed is another question. His wife, I think, certainly didn't deserve to be executed along with him. But Ted, Ted turned to Joan in the midst of all of that and said, what I did was more significant than what Rosenberg probably did. I should confess uh, and save their lives. And Joan, in her infinite wisdom, said, you won't save their lives at all. You'll just destroy ours. And she was right. Um, so that gives you a sense of Ted and the kind of man he was. I mean, what drove him to do what he did was a conviction and a kind of courage, whether you agree with what he did or not. Um, he did, I think he did it for the right reasons, whether you agree that what he did was right or wrong. Yeah. I mean, it gets into some very basic questions about scientific ethics. Does science belong to all of humanity or does it belong to simply, you know, the, the nation or the lab that develops it? If it's developed for a weapon, you know, does that change the calculus? Um, I mean, the Soviet Union, as, as is pointed out, you know, at the time, 
in World War II, they were our allies. Uh, they, they, you know, ar- arguably, we don't we don't win World War II without the Soviets absorbing heavy losses and and keeping Hitler, uh, you know, very busy on the Eastern Front. Absolutely. Um, and and also, I mean, to you know, to be you know uh, fair too, I mean, the 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 halls were were members of the Communist Party. I mean, they they were they, that's where their politics were, uh, much like much like the Rosenbergs, and. Again, it gets sort of complicated, and I'm glad you brought up that you know this episode where you know Paul, which is dramatized, and I want to get to the to the dramatizations in in the film in, the, in a second. But the, there there are a number of times when he seems to be thinking, well, the right thing to do is is something that, as she says, will destroy their family or will wreck their lives, and it's almost like she becomes the driving force, but like on a, a like almost like an enforcer of their family life. Uh, you know, a less charitable uh, interpretation would be that she is Lady Macbeth uh, in this film. <laughs> uh, because she is very unapologetic about why they were doing this and seems very much more sure of herself and ironclad than Ted is. Ted seems very philosophical, very compassionate, as the title of your film says, and, you know, would would probably have have turned himself in decades before, if not for his wife saying, nope, you've got a family. Uh, yeah, no, I I think you're absolutely right. I mean, Ted and and even you know once once it became clearer and clearer to Ted and Joan and many people on the left who were sympathetic to communism, you know, and, and it must be remembered that both their families came from Russia. Joan and Ted's family's parents literally immigrated from Russia. So, so you know, there was that kind of bond as well. But once it became clear that the Soviet Union was a totalitarian state and, and the, 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 the terrible transgressions of Stalin, you know, Ted did, and he says this in, in archived interviews in the film recorded in 1999, he says that he, he had misgivings about what he had done, that he not sure that he would have done it again if he had it to do over. And Joan is four square. You did the right thing. Yeah. You did the right thing. You did it for the right reasons. It was necessary. And so, yes, she, she, <laughs> she, she was much more sure about what Ted had done than Ted was ultimately. Um, and, and I think for Ted, and this is where the title of the film comes from, Ted says at one point when he's asked that he thinks the real reason he did it was out of compassion, compassion for the Soviet people, not for the Soviet government. Right. Um, because he worried what the U.S. was capable of in the post-war world, having this bomb all to itself. And again, worth pointing out, I mean, this is a, a layer that isn't um, it, it, it. It's not it's more than a coincidence, I think, that there's a there's an extra layer of apprehension, I think, among all these folks, which is that they're all Jewish, you know, and, and they're in the middle of a war in which Jewish people are being systematically exterminated by Hitler. Um, and so that, that is an extra layer of, of, you know, kind of how do I react to this? I mean, like if I, if I win the war, you know, if I help win the war, I, uh, you know, I, I avert, you know, more of, of the Holocaust as it unfolds, but then I'm also, we're, we're leading to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Japanese, uh, you know, and later on, as they see what unfolds in, in Russia and the Soviet Union under Stalin, even more. Uh, so it's, it's, it's this just 
unbelievable ma magnitude of of like sort of of guilt and compassion and like where do I go uh, in history's you know most monumental like mo chapter in in recent times. Yeah, I mean, you know, many of the scientists, prominent scientists at Los Alamos were Jewish, um, and a big, a huge part of their motivation to do this was because there was this fear that the Germans would get there first. They, it was clear that the Germans were, were also attempting to develop such a bomb. And so that was, you know, a huge uh, part factored into their, these scientists' decisions to become a part of this. They also were extremely excited about the science of it. I mean, it, it, when you look at AI today, I think there's an interesting parallel. It's sort of like you've got all these great minds who are working to make AI this incredible technology, while at the same time, many of them also understand that there is a great danger in that technology. And yet, and yet they persevere. So there was a lot going on. And, and there were a lot of scientists at Los Alamos that agreed with Ted that this, this Soviet Union as our allies should be part of this process. And they even spoke up about it, but none of them, well, Klaus Fuchs acted, but most of them, most of the rest of them spoke up about it, but didn't do what Ted did. I mean, Ted in some ways is the equivalent, you know, of Edward Snowden uh, in our time, because he was someone on the inside who went into this with the sort of purest of motives to do the right thing, to help the world, and then came to increasingly believe that what he was working on was a real problem and then made a decision that he was going to do something about it from the inside. And that's kind of what Snowden did. And there are many people who look at Edward Snowden today as a hero and many people who look at Edward Snowden today as a traitor. I want to uh, ask you about the decision to do traumatizations. I mean, you know, th th sometimes these can be very helpful because you know there, there's there it's such a, an illustrative like story you want to give some bones on it besides just the the first-hand interviews because again you have you have as you said you have a couple of archival interviews with ted and with joan and then you speak to them yourselves you also speak to their kids you speak to the kids of their friend who helped them relay the information to the soviets so it's this multi-generational story and it's and it's supplemented by the the dramatization. Like what what went into the decision to use that, use the dramatization there of of like young young actors to portray them in the in the forties and fifties. Yeah. So I I think fairly early in the process after that initial interview with Joan, I it dawned on me that we may want to do some kind of reenactments. And and what governed that was number one. Joan and then Ted, once I saw his versions of the story, he he participates in this. They were such vivid recollections of of what happened and incredibly dramatic, vivid recollections of what happened. And there would be no way to see any of that. There was no there would be no way to fake it with archival from the past or, um, you know, there, there would just be no way to, to bring it to life. And the fact that when we interviewed Joan at first, she was 91 years old and she's talking about things that happened when she was in her early twenties and Ted was in his early twenties. I just thought it, you know, it would be really great to sort of see who these people were 
and involved in something so huge at such a young age and and their lifestyle which is i think is unfamiliar to many people who look at people that age and think oh everyone back then was really conservative and um you know very religious and you know they never would have been like they were well they there were a lot of people like they were um there was there was a strong current of leftist people who had kind of rejected uh, much about what capitalism stood for and wanted to act on it. And there are a lot of people today, young people today, uh, not so young people today, who have similar feelings. And it's almost like history works in cycles. It does. And so I, I also thought that the recreations would be a way to engage younger audiences today with this historic yeah. story and hopefully help them to relate to it. Because, you know, we find ourselves in, in, a, in a very fraught moment today. I mean, nuclear weapons haven't gone away. They've just kind of gone away in the public eye. They're kind of coming back for a lot of reasons, not just Christopher Nolan's movie. Um, but they're coming back. But we have all of these concerns today about the future of our planet and the future of the human race. And these were very much... Uh, uh, alive during that time when all of this, when this war was going on and when this bomb was being developed. Is what, are, what was your reaction when you started to realize that as you're developing this, you know, Nolan's working on Oppenheimer, you know, I mean, like you mentioned, I mean, you, you could not have predicted, you know, the, the development of AI that we've seen in just leaps and bounds over the yeah. last like few months. <clears throat> um, you know, that, that they're, it seems like there is this confluence because you know your your, your movie, uh, you finished it you know last year I believe, uh, yeah. and and really started releasing on the festival circuit, and then all of a sudden you know um, it it it's it's uh, you know it it becomes like a part of this uh, our our Barbenheimer universe uh, that we're living in right now at least for the recent times. What was your reaction when you saw all these sort of events sort of coming together? Well, you know, we were deep into our film when we heard that that uh, Christopher Nolan was had the intention of, of adapting American Prometheus into a film. And I'm a Christopher Nolan fan. So I was like, wow, that's that's great. Um, I was worried that he was copying me. No, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> He's, he's he, yeah. He's going to be doing a uh, his next movie is about Chicago high school basketball players. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. He's he, he's been following me, stalking me. Um, <laughs> no, uh, but uh, you know, I figured, you know, I think that it's, I think it's funny because at the time we were making it, the the closest uh, approximation to what was going on in the contemporary world to what went on then is climate was climate change. And it's still climate change is still obviously very much front and center, but this sense that are we going to save our world or are we going to destroy our world? And, and, you know, at the end of our movie, Ted gives this great advice to people to, to not leave it to politicians and people in power to, to decide these questions about what we do with our world. And he was talking about nuclear arms when he said that, but it applies very much to everything that's going on. So when AI came along, it was just one more and even more technologically vivid sort of example of, of, of what, how this relates. And then, and then, you know, I, I think it's no accident that 
you know, the war in Ukraine has has fueled our concerns about the possible deployment of nuclear weapons, whether they be battlefield nuclear weapons or something more significant. And the fact that China, um, China has now seems to be um, really having committed tremendous resources to becoming a full-fledged nuclear power. Up until now, China has been satisfied to have a few nuclear weapons, but not really engage in that arms race with the Soviet or the Russia and the United States. And now they seem to be joining that that race, which is, you know, an incredibly destabilizing development in its own right. It is, you know, a reminder that I, I mean, I I'm a, I was born in, in uh, the 70s, so like I grew up with the tail end of nuclear dread. Um, you know, I didn't have to do I, the drills in in school, but you know, I you know when I was young and and the day after was on television, it scared the hell out of me. Uh, and that was not a that fear was palpable in in particularly in the um, the adults you know that that I live with. And then it just sort of went away for a little while. Uh, but the bombs are all still there. <laughs> there really aren't that many that have been dismantled. Uh, and, no. and again, it only takes one uh, to do a lot of damage. So if we if we have drawn down our nuclear stockpiles a little bit, we still have plenty, plenty of ammo to blow up the planet and a few others along the thousands, way. Thousands, thousands. And, and the, the, the power of those weapons uh, dwarfs what was dropped on Japan. And, the, the you know, it's sort of like the, it's now moving it's moved, it's moved into space and it's going to move more into space. So the, the increasing level of sophistication of these weapons and lethality of these weapons is only um, increasing. So yeah, it's, it's almost like we, we've had so many other problems. We've been able to put nuclear war aside as a concern because we have other things that are front and centered um, giving us tremendous anxiety, but they're all still there. And, and, and it's, it's, we are no safer today than we were 30 years ago when people were, um, were, were really worried about this and marching in the streets about it. And I was curious about something just on timing too, that, you know, one of the reasons it seems that, that Ted Hall came forward, you know, in the late nineties to, to talk about his experience, to talk about what he did was he was dying. Um, he, he had Parkinson's, he had cancer. He knew that there wasn't a lot of time left. Uh, and there wasn't, uh, at the time that he was interviewed by the BBC and CNN, and then also on a personal uh, level for archival purposes, it, it states. Um, but also a book had come out, uh, bombshell, uh, about this, you know, based on, you know, partially on some declassified, uh, NSA documents that identified him as a, as a Soviet asset, uh, in, in the, um, atomic bomb, you know, sort of espionage and, I, I'm just I'm curious if, if you if you found any of the is, is the any evidence of why there there wasn't an effort to prosecute him or extradite him was he just too old he was going to die uh, did, was there ever thought about going after Joan by the FBI yeah um, you know because it seems like they um, you know Joan sort of comes across as, as we've said earlier just almost with impunity like she has no regrets about this whatsoever um, and lives you know you know. <laughs> Well, after uh, after Ted died. Yeah. Yeah. And Joan just recently passed away. I'm sad to report um, uh, uh, about a month ago. 
Yeah, you know, I think what it was is by the time those NSA documents were declassified in the 90s, it had been literally 50 years uh, since Ted had passed secrets. And I think that there just wasn't the appetite at that point to do anything legal, but I think they clearly wanted to expose what he'd done and, and have him be ridiculed and at least in a, in a public eye. And, and he was in a lot of ways ridiculed. I mean, there were some people that were sympathetic, but there was plenty of press that was completely unsympathetic to him. And I think that he, you know, it's interesting the the bombshell authors, um, who are in Joe, the film, you know, yeah, who are in the film, Joe Albright showed up at Ted's door in Cambridge, England and said, we want to tell your story, but we really want to tell it fully, not just what the newspapers are doing. And Ted turned him away at first because it was just like he didn't want anything to do with it. And then he talked to Joan <laughs> and then he called him back and he said, I've changed my mind. Um, I will cooperate because I think he realized that this was a chance for the story to at least be told fully and from his point of view and not just from the point of view of these declassified documents and and people who would who would just be unfailingly critical of him and and in a similar way Joan felt like our chance to make this film did the same thing and I know that for her the opportunity to get this story out and told before she passed on um, was was something that meant a great deal to her, and it meant a great deal to us um, to be able to get this story more fully out there for for people that don't know anything about it. And I, I should mention, I, I neglected to say the the authors' names. It's, it's Jill Albright and Marsha Kunstel who did uh, Bombshell. Yes. Well, Steve, thank you for you know taking some time to talk about about your movie. It's I, I understand it's getting a release soon on August fourth. Where can people stream that, uh, or 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 see it in the in the in a, in a theater perhaps next to yeah yeah <laughs> next to an IMAX theater? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we shot it in IMAX. Uh, no, um, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's playing in select cities. Uh, you know some of the some of the bigger ones: New York, LA, Chicago, Washington D.C., uh, and some other places. And then it it will be available the same at the same time streaming on most of the major platforms uh that one can stream on you know for a price you have to pay yes. for it, but <laughs> yes well it'll, it'll it's 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 i mean yeah it, it can be a, a a part of of people's continuing you know barbieheimer weekend they can yeah well you adding. know I, I i saw i saw oppenheimer over the weekend and i of course have a particular interest in it but I'm hopeful that people who watch it and, and are really struck by that story and by that history will crave more because there's definitely things in our film, not just Ted's story, but different aspects of what went on that we dig into that Oppenheimer did not. And of course, they dug into things we didn't dig into. So they're, they're a nice companion piece. I'm glad you didn't blow anything up in your movie. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Steve, thanks again for, for talking to uh, to us here on Political Theater, and good luck with the movie. Yeah, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. <laughs>